0: Greetings, race community. Brent, coming in live with an extra special guest today, I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Jennifer Ward, who is the president at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, which is approximately nine miles from the farm that I grew up on. Welcome, Dr. Ward.
1: (laughs) Thank you for having me. Nine miles? I had no idea. Nine miles. I am right
0: outside. I grew up right outside of Frankville on a a 160-acre farm. If you're happening to catch this on YouTube, you will see that I am wearing my Norwegian flag shirt, which we'll talk a little bit more about, courtesy of Pulpit Rock Brewing Company in Decorah, Iowa, which is a good product of uh, Luther College. And, uh, and hopefully we can touch on that. But the reason that Dr. Ward is joining us today is really uh, by a recommendation from one of our prior guests, uh, Martin Shell of Stanford, who many of you enjoyed hearing from. And uh, he shared that uh, as a fellow, native Arkansan, he and uh, Dr. Ward crossed paths early in their respective journeys into higher education leadership, and we thought it would be a no-brainer as we try to uh, include more uh, uh, presidential voices as we talk about the intersection of innovation and fundraising. And so with all of that said, Dr. Ward, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm, I'm re- very pleased to be here.
0: One of the ways we've been kicking off is really um, it's hard to find a higher education leader who doesn't have Uh, some um, shaping of their career path that links back to their own collegiate journey. And so I would love for you to take me back to the log cabin Democrat days, junior year of high school in Ohio. Who was that, Jennifer? What was she into? What led her to Hendricks College? And did you always speak German growing up? Take it away.
1: (laughs) Okay, well, first of all, it was Arkansas, not Ohio, although I did start my teaching career at the College of Worcester in Ohio, so that's... I what don't I
0: know was. why. If I said Ohio, I definitely met Arkansas, so okay. well, uh, well, my mistake.
1: It's, it's, woo, woo pig suey. Um, so I, I think that there was something in the water in Conway, Arkansas, um, because Martin and I both had dads who were in very different... Um, professions. His dad was a pastor, mine was at that time a uh, uh, newspaper editor and a musician and everything else, uh, you know, uh, everything else on earth. Um, but there was something about the way we were raised and the teachers we had and the education we received at Hendricks College that, that was really unique Um, when I was a junior in high school, I was just starting to take German. I had, I, I had never taken German. And to be honest, I was trying to do French and Spanish at Conway high school. They had this thing where you had a semester of one language and then a semester of the other, and I couldn't get into French. So I ended up in German, uh, but that was the beginning of a great journey for me because my high school teacher, uh, and I doubt she's listening, but Susan Debord uh, changed the trajectory of my life. This was the kind of high school teacher who said, "I see something in you, and I think you can really do language well. And there's this national organization called the National Federation of Students of German. I don't know if it still exists. And they're having a conference in Gunnison, Colorado, and you should go." And I said, "Well, you know, I'm this 16 year old kid in you know rural Arkansas. How, how on earth would I even think about that?" And she said, I I and Charlie will take you. So Charlie DeBoard was her then fiance and they were gonna take us and one other student uh, to Colorado for this thing. What I didn't figure out until later is that they had then got married and they put me and my friend Wanda in the car and drove us to Gunnison, Colorado, dropped us off at the college out there. And then they went to Aspen for their honeymoon so they took me and my classmate on their honeymoon so that we could have this opportunity that they thought would give us a leg up in the world and would allow us to enrich ourselves uh, and, and so on. And so that started a journey where I then went to college at Hendrix to study under the professor that she had studied under. Uh, and it was the, and he was exactly the same kind of the same kind of teacher. That sort of all in. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out of my way to create opportunities for you that maybe I didn't have when I was growing up, and that and that I can provide for you given my platform. Um, and so it was it was pretty incredible. So no, I, I didn't I didn't learn German growing up. Um, you know, I'm from Scots-Irish heritage, although I've learned now that I've also got some Norwegian background, which gives me some, you know, street cred here in Decorah, <laughs> in Decorah Iowa. But no, German was not on the radar. I, I, I laugh and say if Susan DeBoard had been teaching physics, I might be a physicist right now, which is a big fat lie. I would not be a physicist, but
0: um, it's, I mean, it's just so remarkable how often we hear about these inflection points where it's that one person. Yeah, That one moment, it's kind of like, you know, I've referenced this before, but the movie, the, you know, back to the future. And it's like, if at that moment, this thing happened, then the whole trajectory changes. And it is, uh, it is really remarkable. I don't know. I mean, when you say like my teachers took me on their honeymoon, it, it might come off, you know, the wrong way these days, but, uh, it sounds like it was a really, really pivotal, um, pivotal moment. And I am curious then as you, um, started at Hendricks college. Was that really the catalyst to just know, wow, like this, this language thing is for me. And then also um, what is a BA in German? You know, what do you actually do? What do you focus on? Um, uh, you know, at that time?
1: Well, I wish I could tell you that at the age of 16, I knew exactly what my trajectory was going to be and exactly why I was going to study German and that I would go on and get my PhD and so on. And I did not. What, what I knew was that I loved the experience of learning about a new culture and speaking, literally speaking in a different language and hearing people in a different language and translating and interpreting. And we'll, we'll get to maybe how that has served me as president of a college. Uh, but but I, I just, I loved the experience and I, and I didn't know that much about German culture, but I knew music. I knew Bach, and I knew Beethoven, and uh, and I, I knew art, I knew the romantics. And so all of these things sort of pulled together into this tapestry that, that was um, just exciting and fun. So at that point, it was just, I love this, I will do this. Yeah. I love this, therefore I will study it. And then, you know, BA in German, that's a really good question. I didn't know what I would do with that. So I said, okay, I'll go into graduate school and I'll do more of these things I love and I'll study more literature and watch movies and listen to music and speak language and teach and talk to students and so on. And it was really at that point, I did a Fulbright my third year of graduate school. um, and, And that was the point at which I realized, okay, there's actually a career called doing this stuff that I love. Um, and so I went on and got my PhD then, and 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 went into yeah. teaching. Um, but Love it was it. not the case that I knew what that path was, and I had charted it out, and you know this will lead to that, and and so on. Yeah. Sort of stumbled, stumbled along the path.
0: I've made some notes, and we're going to come back to this because I think in 2021, in the context of what degree are you going to get to get what job? Yeah, I, I do want to get your take on what that means for BAs in German at Luther or beyond. But we'll come back to that. I do want to just share quickly. So I grew up a couple of miles outside of the Decorah School District, and I went to Postville uh, uh-huh. High School. And you might know that Postville had been a uh, uh, just a tremendous melting pot in the 1990s with all of the immigration. Uh, we had the largest kosher meatpacking plant in the United States in Postville. Um, significant immigration from all over uh, Central America and also Eastern Europe. And so I was in sixth grade and all of a sudden uh, we had Slava Leontiev showed up to our class the first day without a single word of English. And then we started having Mexican students show up. And it was like, you know, in Postville, if you were Catholic, you were diverse. You know what I mean? Like that's sort of the environment we were in. And so living through this, this transformation was, was really amazing. And I ended up getting very involved with the Mexican community just through um, church, through our, you know, through volunteer activities. And so I had the exact same experience that you did in Spanish. And I just went all in. I got so like obsessed with learning Spanish. I was listening to Spanish music like before, I mean, on CDs that I was like buying from Columbia house or something like that. And uh, and, and I had that same feeling of just being able to communicate with somebody in their native language is, is really special. I ended up going on to, to play football, at Brown University, and I ended up studying Spanish, Portuguese and Italian. So very much kind of, um, uh, you know, kindred spirit in, in I'll, that I'll regard.
1: Agree. Yeah. W- one time uh, there was something very telling, an experience that I had that was very telling to me about how I thought about all this. And I, I didn't sort of track it until later. Um, I was, I was in the subway um, in, in Berlin with a colleague of mine and, um, and she kept talking to me in English and I kept sort of rebuffing her and wanting to only speak in German and, and, you know, but we're friends and, and she kept saying, you know, things in English. And I would say, no, I, and finally I, I, she said, why don't you want to speak in, um, you know, in, in English with me. And I said, because I don't want them to know we're tourists. And she said, but we are. And I thought at that moment, what, you know, what, what, what is the big deal? But later I thought there was something about that experience of, of wanting to be so immersed in that, in that moment that I could become that person that I was not um, that was, that was telling to me. And yeah. I wonder if sometimes actors don't have yes. that, that same kind of experience, you know, so it was like a way you're, an actor without being on the stage, I suppose.
0: Right. You're, you're in, you're in your German character basically. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, the small college experience at Hendrix going to a place like Vanderbilt. Um, had you, uh, easy adjustment, challenging adjustment. I mean, what was that experience like?
1: Well, it was it was a somewhat challenging adjustment because, you know, Hendrix was tiny at that point. It's a little bit bigger than it was at that time. But when Martin and I were in college, we, we, I don't think we were even at a thousand students. It was in the sort of 900 student range. And so you really did just know everybody, um, number one. And number two, you didn't have 7,000 things that you could choose from to do on a daily basis. It was this week, here are the five things you will go to. And what it meant was that everybody went to those five things. And so there was this real residential liberal arts community that I think is hard to replicate in great big colleges where, you know, you have this big menu of of choices of thing to do. So that was a switch, going to a large university in a large city, Nashville, you know, (laughs) compared to Conway Arkansas so was pretty big, but the other thing was that I was a teacher, You know, I was a TA, so I had gotten uh, funding to go to Vanderbilt, and so I was also teaching now for the first time. And the the students were very different from the students I had been surrounded by, at um, at Hendrix. And I and I I don't I don't want to throw anybody under the bus or make fun uh, of of this, but I I said to someone at one point, I said I feel like I'm walking into every class prepared to teach a lesson to someone and they've shown up to a cotillion, you know? So there was a level of kind of um, prestige or, or well resourcedness uh, that, that I was not used to where Hendrix was, where, there were certainly, you know, kids of means at Hendrix, but for the most part, we were sort of the weird scrappy smart kids in arkansas that were drawn to hendrix and and that was not my experience teaching at vanderbilt so it was a little bit of a it was a little bit of a
0: transition but you were there for uh, quite a period of time i do have to ask what your dissertation was about and if yeah. you would share it in german that would be ideal so
1: <laughs> oh es ist so lange her seitdem ich eine dissertation geschrieben habe um, ich habe über Margarete von trotter geschrieben. Die ist eine Filmemacherin in Deutschland und ich habe die fünf sogenannte deutsche Filme von uh, Margarete von uh, Trotta studiert.
0: Love it. Well, I, we have had, had at least one uh, fluent German speaker on the podcast, and so if he's listening, I'm going to ask him to share uh, the the summary, but maybe the quick summary in English just for. Uh, yeah, the, the,
1: the filmmaker, Margarita von Trotta, who, who uh, wrote, who did five so-called German films. So she did lots of different films, but these five films were about the experience of, of German-ness uh, and and womanness. They were all, uh, they all had um, central characters who were women.
0: Wow. I love it. Um, and, and so you complete the PhD, you're teaching during that journey um, had a had a long run at Vanderbilt. Uh, Nashville is a great place. You like music. I'm sure you caught plenty of good music while you were there. I did. Um,
1: I made some music. I was part of a group. Okay. Of, yeah, my nickname is Jenny Kay and my family. And so I was I was the lead vocalist of Jenny Kay and the Sidewinders. It's a true fact. I'm,
0: I am going to look up Jenny Kay and the Sidewinders on Spotify. And if we can find anything, I'm going to share it with our audience. I
1: feel feel confident there's nothing there. I don't think we we made it that far.
0: (laughs) What was your favorite, favorite song that Jenny Kay and the, and the Sidewinders ever, uh, ever released?
1: Oh, we we didn't release anything. We we did one recording, um, and and I think that wasn't even Jenny Kay and the Sidewinders. I think this other woman, Laura, was leading that. But we were mostly just playing around, you know, venues at at Vanderbilt and uh, and things along those lines for fun. Um, but we, you know, we did we did covers of, you know, Patsy Klein stuff and sort of you know Roots country and. Kinds did of you ever,
0: did students ever show up and, and sort of yeah. be like, Professor Ward, what, you know, were they surprised or was this just a part of your persona?
1: There was, well, I was the director of the International House at, at Vanderbilt, McTeer International House. And um, so there were, I don't know how many students, but probably, you know, a couple hundred students, maybe 300 students who lived in the residence hall. And so I sort of knew them as the director of the International House as well as, you know, being their German professor or their German TA, um, so so they, I I was always kind of straddling that line between um, you know just another graduate student and and quote professional person. So no, we we had a good time. It was it was uh, it it was great fun, and I I miss those days.
0: Any uh, favorite performance that you saw during your time in Nashville? Yeah, uh,
1: for sure. Uh, so one was the Talking Heads. Um, and one was Joan Armatrading, um, and I, you know, I'm sure lots of people know jo- uh, know Talking Heads. I'm not sure how well known Joan Armatrading is, but those would be the two that stand out.
0: I love that. I actually have a a former uh, colleague who uh, whose father was a huge Joan uh, Armatrading uh, fan, and and I just kind of discovered her recently. So that's a fun coincidence. So my, you're at my Vanderbilt. Of
1: Talking Heads yeah. was being yeah. I'm desperately afraid that the um, balcony of the gym where the concert was, was going to fall in and I was going to plunge to my death, but, um, because people were jumping up and down and
0: whatnot, but. Wow. Poignant. Um, And, and so. I do want to ask, given that this is a fundraising uh, oriented conversation, and I know you've done a little bit of academic work around fundraising, which is, I think somewhat rare for college presidents, but. At that time at Vanderbilt, did you know about advancement, alumni relations development? Was it on your radar or, or really not recognizing that the sector was much more immature uh, at, that, at that time? Um, so I'm just kind of curious when you first started seeing that intersection of your work academically with the fundraising enterprise.
1: So I, I knew of it in two ways. Uh, one was that because Mctier International House was not a well-funded, uh, particularly well-funded organization um, at Vanderbilt, there was always a little bit of a fundraising effort for international things at at Vanderbilt um, to do programming to uh, you know to do things along those lines, and so I I, I would. I would end up being parts of um, conversations with, and I probably didn't even know at the time that these were potential donors, um, but, but as director of the International House, I would be a part of conversations, which I now recognize as cultivation and stewardship and all those kinds of things. At the time, I just thought I was telling the story about McTier International House and why it was really great, right? So that was the one, uh, the one angle, and the other angle was that my dad uh, had always been, in one way or the other, involved in sort of development or advancement work. Um, even, even at the, at the, uh, you know, after he had been the editor of the newspaper, he left that to write biographies about Winthrop Rockefeller. One of which was about Winthrop Rockefeller's philanthropy. So, he he had um he had a foot in that world all along and then he was he worked for the winthrop rockefeller foundation and and he was the director of public affairs at university of central arkansas which now um is called something different but at that time it in, it incorporated the development wing of the institution so i i knew about those things and i also knew about it in a different way but this is this is going to sound really weird and uh, but i i think you'll get it i grew up in a family that uh, had a grandfather who was a little rural Baptist preacher who traveled around in Arkansas, and went to different parsonages in Arkansas, and Mississippi. And he had eight kids, one of which was my dad. And every time they would get to a new place, they would, you know, be there for a few years. And the way they subsisted was not just with whatever salary he got as the preacher, But the weekly poundings where people would bring a pound of coffee or a pound of sugar or a pound of meat or sometimes a side of meat or a pound of butter and just leave it on the porch. And so the idea was that this community knew that they needed to help sustain the mission of my grandfather's ministry that served them and that they loved. So it was. It was not. You know, it wasn't development. It wasn't advancement. It wasn't even. You know, book versions yeah. of, of philanthropy. But it's that's what it was. These you know people what it was? loved something the, and wanted to sustain it.
0: You know what it was, Doctor Ward. It was crowdfunding. Yeah. Before they called it that, it was before GoFundMe. It. Me before yeah. they called it that, and uh, yeah. it is really amazing to hear about. Um, just that grassroots support. And I do think being able to <clears throat> connect my gift, you know, my gift of coffee to your grandfather, you know, the eggs to your grandfather, like that connection is clear that gets people excited about giving, you know, my gift to the annual fund, yeah, not as clear. And so how do we create that same dynamic and connection where it feels like my gift, my philanthropic gift in 2021 can feel as high impact as leaving the pound of coffee, uh, you know, on on the stair step um, for your grandfather.
1: Yeah, well, two, two things. One is that while my dad and his brothers and sisters probably weren't thinking in these terms, they have ended up being philanthropic in their, I mean, my dad's no longer with us, but they ended up being philanthropic in their various ways and their respective ways in their lives. Not because anyone came and connected the dots for them from the eggs that, you know, or the coffee that showed up to some notion of philanthropy, but they observed and they they incorporated that into their own sort of way of being in the world so that's the first thing but the second thing is when i talk to my development team one of the things that we talk about is how do we uh, of course we need to steward and 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 uplift our high capacity high impact donors 100% but how do we how do we give as much impact um, in in how we describe our work to that person who's a senior at Luther College, who is working on the Student Philanthropy Council, who is either you know writing a note to a donor or is making their first five dollar gift, um, you know to something that is is meaningful and important to them, um, so that so that we. You know, continue building out that pipeline and building out that ethos. That's not even so much about dollars as right. it is about orientation.
0: Yeah, no, you're you're so um, spot on. And we recently uh, completed a merger between our company and ThankView, and I believe Luther College has worked with ThankView in a certain regard. And thinking about ways to authentically connect the student voice, the faculty voice, your voice, frankly. In a more scalable way to more donors. Yes, very top of the giving pyramid, we'll have stewardship plans, and you know whom you're supposed to reach out to when, and who gets invited to the special you know events, and all of that. But for everyone else, how can we create a little bit more of that? You know, your gift, Brent, you know, was was like a dozen eggs for me, the student. Even if the money goes into a general fund and then it somehow gets rerouted in a way that has you know a a uh, less direct impact, but that we're able to channel the story and the impact um, in that same way.
1: Yeah, and I think that part of that is about reframing the, the enterprise, so to speak from, from the what to the why, because when you're talking about dollars, you get stuck in that what category. You know, the, the building X is janky and <laughs> you know needs to be renovated. Um, you know, initiative, why doesn't have enough money to do things. And so we need these dollars need,
0: need, need to fix the track. It's like, okay, we need a track.
1: Yeah. But, but when you start reframing that as, as the why always leading with the why, um, it's easier to move out of that transactional space and, you know, so yes, yes, the track needs, you know, fixing. Um, but why do we care that the track needs fixing? What is it about the experience of a student athlete that's not about running and winning a race, which is yeah. hugely important, but is about the skills and aptitudes and uh, uh, and so on that they learn through their experience as a student athlete? So going like ten levels below right. the dollar to you know here's here's what we're actually trying to accomplish. Um, and it's hard to go there because, you know, there are only so many minutes in a day and, and, you know, you need the dollars too, (laughs) you know,
0: for sure. No. And I, I, look, I think it's the why for sure. And also the, you know, the who, the whom it's, it's, you know, I am the student. Like, I am so psyched that we've got this new track. Thank you, Dr. Ward for making this possible. Here's a little bit about my story and without people like you, this, education opportunity impact doesn't happen. And so, you know, yeah, the track was fixed, but really why and for whom and and how do we really um personalize that as much as possible? Um and, and it sounds like you're you're super aligned there. I do want to just know a little bit making the move from Nashville um as you uh went to Gustavus Adolphus, big big change. Maybe uh a little bit more like Hendrix College of, of an environment, maybe not, but, but just tell me a little bit about making that, that move. And again, spending a, a dozen years, uh, you know, in, in, you know, really a leadership role, uh, at least departmentally there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I went to Gustavus via a couple of other jobs. So I started my teaching career at the college of Worcester in Northeast Ohio, but, but same, That's kind, right. same kind of school. And then I had one year at Rhodes college, uh, before I went to Gustavus. Um, so I, you know, both of those institutions before I got to Gustavus were, were great for me, uh, starting out at the College of Worcester was a, was a fantastic place to start. Um, you know, Rhodes was good because I, I was just there for one year, but I was teaching me, uh, you know, those were students, it's two hours away from where I grew up. It's in Memphis those, those were, those were my tribe, you know, and so it was fun, that had not been the case at, at, at Worcester, so it was fun to teach, um, to teach at Rhodes for that year, but I got to Gustavus, and Gustavus was really the first time that I had moved out of my comfort zone, uh, in terms of where I was going to be a native, and I, obviously, I wasn't going to be a native, but, I had done lots of travel. I just talked to you about wanting to blend in, wanting not to be taken for a tourist. I, I, I got really jazzed doing that. But just like an actor who goes on the stage and occupies a character for a minute and then goes back out of it, that was what I was always doing with travel or even with study abroad or things like that. Going to Gustavus, you know, tenure track job, this is where I'm going to be. This is, this is going to be my life. This is who I'm going to be. And it was not like what I grew up with. It would now, you know, decor is more, um, you know, covered up in Norwegians. Uh, Gustavus was was Swedish, and so I got to my first class on the first day, and I had my class list of of this, you know, first class, and it was Kirsten Anderson, Kirsten Anderson, Christy Anderson, you know every name was a lot of, a lot of Anders
0: in. back then. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Every, every, every name was, was a version of the same. And then I walked into the classroom and every person was blonde haired and blue eyed. And I thought, okay, this is, I, it, it, you know, I grew up in a, in a part of the South that was, um, you know, Conway was probably 30, 35, 40% African-American. You know, my, my high school was, uh, you know, it was integrated. Um, it, was just, it was just very, very different. Mm-hmm. And so I struggled really the first few years at Gustavus because I knew I was not just sort of going in for a trip and then coming back out. And so I, I, it took me a while to, to settle in there. And the more I, I spent time there and, and got into leadership, I think the easier it became for me. Um, and it was really when I became the department chair of Modern Languages, Literatures and Cultures, which is a big, a big department at Gustavus. It has, you know, all, French, German, Spanish at the time, French, German, Spanish, Russian, Japanese, Latin American studies, a big language learning center, Scandinavian studies, Swedish. you know, um, it, was, it was big. Um, And that's where I sort of felt like, oh, okay, no, I, I, I can have this home because look at this sort of melting pot of all these different cultures and so on. So it was the it was the micro culture within the larger culture that allowed me to find the foothold and say, okay, no, I can do this. This is good. I can do this.
0: I should have asked. But did you pick up any other languages along the way?
1: Yeah, I uh, well, I did a little bit of Spanish in high school, and uh, I took French in college. And um, you know, I'm I'm one of those people who, uh, when I was at Vanderbilt, they they would call from the Rotary International uh, convention because they always met at Opryland at the time, and they said, send send Jennifer Ward over there to serve as an interpreter. And and I asked, I said, okay, well, how, do you have lots of people from Germany? And they said because the, year, the first year I'd done it, they did. And they said, well, well no. And I said, well, then what do, you, what do you need me for? And they said, well, you'll be better than we are. And, I, and, and they were right, <laughs> because there's a way in which, and you know this from Spanish, if you learn one language, you have a set of skills that just prepare you to try to you know, muddle through any other language. And so, you know, through animated gestures, through, you know, drawing pictures on napkins, I could get further than the deer in the headlights person. Right. Front desk at the Opera Land Hotel, you know.
0: Well, so, it's fun to say that you, uh, you've you translated uh, so many other languages without speaking them. That is a, <laughs> without, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, without speaking a word. And then and then when I was in Seattle, I was the dean at uh, Cornish College of the Arts.
0: Just and and I had never... I had never heard of Cornish college of the arts until I did my research for this, uh, this meeting. So tell me more about it. And,
1: uh, well, if you've heard of Merce Cunningham or John Cage, uh, you've heard of Cornish college of the arts because that's where they got their, uh, start and that's where they did their great collaboration. And got it. uh, Yeah. So it's a visual and performing arts college in, uh, in downtown Seattle. And, um, uh, a tiny little school, wonderful, uh, wonderful people, uh, you know, everyone there is a working artist, um, students are crazy wonderful, um, you know, the commencement ceremony at Cornish College of the Arts is unlike any I've ever seen, and, and just, you know, everybody shows up in costume, and, and themes, and, you know, they bring gifts to their department chairs, and it's raucous, and uh, wow. it's, it's, it's really great. Yeah.
0: And uh, and so this thread of like language and arts from high school persists through uh, your time there. I want to talk about your time in Louisiana. Certainly, when I think Luther College, you know, I think of that same intersection, arts, culture, language, etc. So tell me about the, the trip to Louisiana. And then ultimately, when did you, you know, along this journey, when did you think to yourself, you know what, I might like to be a college president someday? Was that an early aspiration or along the way when did it click? Yeah, for sure
1: not. If if you had told me when I was in high school at Conway, you know, high school, you're going to be a college president, I would I that I would not have believed you. Um so I something important happened in the spring of 2012, which is that I, when I was at, at, at Cornish in Seattle, which is that my dad died and I, and he had had a long illness, he had lymphoma. And, um, and I think as is often the case when someone uh, has that kind of loss, even if the, the loss is not happening at that place, you associate that grief with that place. So that was one thing that happened. And I was also not sure how my mom was going to do, you know, because she was back in Arkansas. I, I, I mean, it turns out she has no use for me whatsoever. She's a gigging jazz pianist. She was, you know, I, I needn't have worried. But this opening came up at Centenary College of Louisiana to be the provost. And that's a, a Methodist school like Hendrix was. I had known about Centenary from my time at Hendrix. Um, and it, you know, about three hours from where my mom lived, and so I thought, you know what, th- this may be the universe telling me that there's an opportunity for me to, you know, do the work I love, but also be closer to mom, see if she's going to be okay, and so on. So I, I threw my hat in the ring, and I ultimately, um, I, I, I took that role, um, and and so it was partly, I just needed to move because I needed to dislodge that grief that was located where I had experienced it. Uh, and partly because I, I want, you know, I was concerned about my mom and, uh, and so on. And, and I was interested in, in, you know, what was going on at Centenary. Uh, so I, I took that role and I spent about five years uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, which is this fascinating part of Louisiana. It's, you've got the sort of Creole-Cajun, french stuff coming up from new orleans you've got the sort of cowboy latino stuff coming over from texas you've got the old south coming over from mississippi and you've got the kind of Ozark mountain culture coming down from arkansas and they all just collide in shreveport so i, I it was fascinating I, I i loved my time in shreveport um and i and i missed that quite a lot um, but I would say that that's probably I did some sort of development work when I was at uh, at Cornish, uh, but I would say that that Centenary is where I really started paying attention and thinking about the degree to which I loved that work, uh, partly because I loved telling these stories, um, you know, and uh, and and so I, I, I enjoyed that time. I start, when I was at Cornish, I started getting, um, you know, outreach from search consultants who would say, so-and-so has, has nominated you for X presidency. And it was the first time that I got a nomination for a presidency that I that I, I thought about it. <laughs> is,
0: that, um, is that common? I mean, how does one get nominated?
1: Uh, yeah. So... So, typically, what happens in presidential searches is that uh, the institution will engage an executive search firm that specializes in higher education. Um, and uh, they'll send out, you know, just they'll blanket uh, their contacts with, Do you have any names for us? Who would you recommend? And so on. So, somewhere along the line, somebody who had worked with me, probably in the Modern Language Association, where I had a national position. Uh, for a while, um, thought I had, you know, what what they thought this institution needed, uh, and they nominated me. But I, I really had not had presidential aspirations until somebody said, you should be a college president. And, you know, my first response was, okay, and then my second response was, you know, oh, shucks. And then my third response was, huh, because I, I think the more I, I um, advanced in higher education administration, the more I started seeing how much bigger the picture was than the one I had seen before. And then that picture would expand to the next bigger picture. And then, you know, and then that would expand. And I think by that time, I was starting to think, um, I don't, I don't want to be that person who complains about administration and complains about presidents and is not willing to get in there herself and try to um, be of service to this profession.
0: And so to the extent you can share, when did you start um, fielding those opportunities in earnest? Because my, my sense would be once you kind of came to that, you know, First, somebody says, you, you can do it. You should do it. You go from oh shucks to you know what? Yeah. Maybe I could. Yeah. Maybe I'd like to. Do you then have to start a networking process to get to know those search firms? I mean, how does that happen? Because I'm sure there are folks listening today yeah. who are like, I might like to do that someday, yeah. but I really have no idea how you throw your hat in the ring.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I would say the first couple of times it was sort of like, I'm not ready for that. I'm not going to do that. You know, it was really when I was at Centenary that I started um, entertaining the idea in earnest and partly because I was getting more and more nominations and and just sort of had to, had to confront this question more. And so uh, what I did and what I would recommend that others do is look at uh, national organizations like the Council of Independent Colleges. I, I've always been in the independent you know, the private college sphere. Um, there are other kinds of organizations that that work for public universities and so on. Um, but they have kind of a roadmap to the presidency kinds of programs or uh, CIC also does one on the vocation of a college president, um, you know, and, and uh, ACE, uh, the American Health Education has a, has a great big year long process where you sort of shadow people. And mm-hmm. so there are these kind of, um, you know, professional development opportunities that can set you on that path. And a couple of them, like the, the one on vocation, it really is asking the question, do you see this as a vocation? Do you really want to do this? Are you sure you want to do this? Let's, let's, let's do some work on who you are and let's ask questions about why you would want to do this. And then at the end of it, you know, I, I suspect some people say, you know what, I actually, I don't, the more I think about it, thank you. Um, And then some people see, no, this is really truly what I want to do. So I did one of those. I did a, a, a little shorter, um, sort of week-long one. And then I also did a week-long principles and techniques of fundraising, um, you know, through the, through the Lilly School, through the fundraising school. And it was those two together, I think, that, that said, no, this is actually truly what I wanna do. I really wanna do this. Now, my timing was lousy because starting a college presidency six months before a pandemic hits, I would not recommend, I wouldn't recommend that timing to, uh, you know, to anyone, but I I had no way of knowing it's time.
0: And you started anyway, you show up in beautiful Decorah, Iowa, uh, and it really is a spectacular town. I'm biased, but when you think about the intersection of higher education and local economic development, I mean, you just can't imagine that place without Luther College, um, you know, as sort of this engine of growth and employment and all of these, these things. Um, What was your initial impression? It is a small town, 5,000, you know, 7,000 people, something like that. Maybe, maybe it's grown a little bit, but uh, seven,
1: seven, seven ish. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you had six months pre pandemic, at least to drink from the fire hose in a, you know, in-person context. Um, What was that like? And uh, you know, how, how does one onboard, as a college president, where you truly have to be a jack of all trades, master of none, except for German, maybe?
1: Uh, so, yeah. Um, well, I think that I what I, if there are people who have presidential aspirations, I would, I would first of all say, be really, really conscious of the community in which that college, you know, lives. Um, because being a college president at us in a small town is, a thousand times different from being a college president in a large city. Um, yeah, I mean,
0: you must get recognized everywhere you everywhere. go. You go to the, you go to the whippy dip, you go to, you know, uh, yeah. whatever, pulpit rock. Yeah. I mean,
1: everywhere. people just, yeah. Yeah. And Are you taking,
0: taking selfies, signing autographs? I mean, is it that <laughs> level
1: of, yeah. No. Selfies? Yes. Um, but no autographs, uh, autographs. No. Um, so the first semester that I was here was, um, you know, first of all, the beginning of the school year, um, the, you know, the opening convocation, uh, the big homecoming thing, which is a big deal at Luther where a billion people come back to town and and so on. Um, but one of the things for my inauguration, which was on November 2nd of that year that I had said early on when we were planning it is that I wanted to take seriously that Luther understood its role as being an economic driver in this community and that we saw Decora as our community that we were, that we were gonna connect with. And, and I think that that was a very necessary message for me to give. Um, And one of the ways I gave it is when we were planning the inauguration and so you know there were all of these activities on Friday during the day and then the ceremony on Saturday and the big concert on Sunday and so on, but the question was what are we going to do on Friday night, and people were thinking well we could have a talent show on campus we could do this we could do that, and I said no let's go downtown. Let's move everything downtown. Let's let's talk to businesses, see if they want to host our students doing things. Let's see if Impact Coffee will will open their doors and have something. Pulpit Rock created a a special uh, (laughs) beer for the occasion. There were parties, there were banners, and it was incredible. And it was such a and it wasn't really about celebrating me it was about celebrating the relationship between this college and this town and saying, no, we don't expect you to come over here and find a parking place and come into some event or another. We're, we're gonna take business to you. All the people- It's who- almost like, yeah.
0: it's like you flipped homecoming on its head or something. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> let's all leave campus and go right. to the surrounding area. Yeah,
1: Yeah. Um, or to recognize that campus doesn't have a big bubble around it, you right. know. That there's no big fence, and that campus in this kind of small town um, has to be understood as extending into the into the city. And when we have, you know, I don't know, when we have international students come from far-flung countries all over the world to be here. These are not gonna be necessarily, you know, kids with Norwegian surnames and blonde hair and blue eyes. And I need for this community to embrace this college. And for them to embrace this college means that we have to embrace the importance of this town uh, for, for, our, for our survival. survival. So it's a, it's a kind of, you know, mutually assured sustainability kind of um, approach, I would say.
0: Can you tell me I mean you did join six months before it sounds like the pandemic or i mean the uh the convocation was sort of this pinnacle, and then uh, things start to go you know downhill uh yeah. you know with with the pandemic or 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 shift yeah. quickly um so oh. you go ahead
1: yeah, I was just gonna say we we had started a kind of presidential you know an in, introduction tour across the country, so uh the plan was that we would have these uh, sort of alumni events in different parts of the country. And so we got through, we did one in Southern California, we did one in Northern California, we did one in Denver, we did one in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and then you know the needle scratched across the record and that was the end of that um, because of the pandemic. So the plan had been for that whole year to be the sort of um, going around the country and visiting with alumni groups and so on. And that just got, that just got halted and so the the weird thing now is having you know I'm in my third year now I'm two and a half years in and on the one hand it feels like I've been here for a thousand years and on the other hand I feel like I still don't know a lot of people in person I, I can't have known a lot of people in person so one of the things that that we did at Luther um I had I had just hired. I was able to hire uh, a, a vice president for development, and um, and Stephen Sporer and I uh, sort of put our heads together with with his team, and we came up with this plan to do what we called Zoom coffees. So where we would ask one of our one of the members of our board of regents to identify you know ten people who would join us for a Zoom coffee some morning. And what we thought we were doing was connecting with these 10 individuals and telling them about the college and telling them about me and, you know, my vision and so on. What we didn't really calculate is is what I consider to be almost more valuable than that, which is that we created opportunities for them to connect with each other. There, there, were, there were times when I felt like I could just like turn, you know, turn audio and video off and they wouldn't have even noticed that I was gone because they were reconnecting with each other. And they're telling stories about how much they loved Luther. And remember that one time when we did so and so. And hey, person X, I know you went to Luther at a different time that we did. Did you, did you go to the such and such? um it was it was it was something and so I I think we'll try to continue those because you know on one call we would have somebody here in Decorah somebody in La Crosse somebody in Australia somebody on the west coast somebody on the east coast it was it was um it was our way of of trying to 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 keep the 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 stewardship boat afloat um when when I couldn't be going out to doing these things yeah
0: and there's been a lot of talk about the pros and cons of in-person versus remote. We're doing remote right now. I feel like I'm getting to know you well, you know, in this medium. Would it be great if we could be together in person? Sure. Would it be efficient? No, for for no one. And so when you think about the the the, the demand on your time as a college president, that of your peers, I would imagine the efficiency of being a part of those 10-person Zoom coffees or being able to drop in and say hello in a one-on-one conversation with the key prospect, even if it's for 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, what a gift that I hope we can take away from this really challenging period that was the pandemic. Um, and imagine trying to facilitate that kind of 10-person discussion at a happy hour, at a dinner party. It would be random and almost impossible. And the way that you can thoughtfully sort of engineer who you want to get together and have you be more of the facilitator or almost the, uh, you know, Socratic method, getting everybody talking with each other versus feeling like you need to do the formal keynote and tell everyone what you think. I mean, it it sounds like it was really eye-opening.
1: Yeah. And I, and, and so I guess the, the, you know the message for me has been or the learning for me has been um to understand that there is an appropriate modality for each kind of thing that you're trying to do and it needn't be all or nothing we do very well with black we do very well with white we kind of suck when it comes to the gray scale you know and and most everything really probably should live in the gray scale and so it is not the case that a remote uh, faculty meeting works as well as a remote Zoom copy with 10 alumni from different generations all over the world. And so there are things that um, you know, in this current conversation about the great resignation and hybrid and remote and so on and so forth, that I, that I find really challenging, because as a residential college, part of the work, is not just you fulfilling your tasks. Part of the work is being part of a dynamic, activated community, so that when a student comes into a building or a coworker comes into a building, they don't just see two tumbleweeds rolling through and hear a lonesome whistle whistleblow. Yeah. You know, and, and so to, to disaggregate Um, different modalities and when to
0: use them
1: from some sort of blanket. Let's all go remote now. Right. I'll be in person now, you know? Yeah, no,
0: I think you're right. The gray is where it gets challenging because uh, Mm -hmm. there is very good merit for, uh, I mean, the vocal performance, the opera work, the arts at Luther, not as good on Zoom. Does it mean that you, you know, it yeah. doesn't mean you can't live stream things. And I've seen you all do things on Facebook. So that if people can't be there in person, yeah. they can at least get a window in. So that's a good balance. But when you, when you think about you know, really leaning back into the in-person student experience, that is sort of the polar opposite of how do we engage alumni in Australia, which yeah. three years ago, it meant we probably didn't. We probably does not Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. And now we are a Zoom link away from every single Luther College graduate around the world. Yep. And so how do we kind of really lean into that strategy while at the same time recognizing that that wouldn't be the right strategy, given the mission and, and, and the vision of what the in-person residential experience should be at Luther. And, and I think that's the gray that a lot of leaders are struggling with right now.
1: Yeah, it's hard. And, and, you know, on the one hand, I will say, so, for example, with Christmas at Luther last year, which was not in person, uh, but it was great. You know, and 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 for that I would have said, um, when people were despairing of trying to do something that was not in person, which is what we had always done, and you know, what so many people value. And and to them I would have I did say and would have said, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the very, very good. There is something very, very good about a, a remote Christmas at Luther, and it was and it was wonderful. So that's on the one hand, on the other hand, let's not let the good be the enemy of uh, even better by saying, you know, let's recognize what it is we're trying to do here and is what we're trying to do here dependent on face-to-face interaction or is it not? And even more nuanced, when are the times when it needs to be face-to-face and when not? what is the critical mass of people who need to be in a space for it to feel activated and dynamic? Yeah. When do we worry about the fact that my personal desire to, I don't know, you know be remote for whatever reason, and some of the reasons are very good, um, starts to have an impact on the loneliness and isolation a coworker feels when they come into the office and there's nobody around. So I think those are hard conversations. And and I worry that we are on this fast train to saying, if you don't believe in one hundred percent remote, you're just a dinosaur. I don't think that's true.
0: Yeah, and I have been quite public that in the advancement context, you know, when I look at the top, you know, populations, uh, the, the the centers of population for Luther College, it's Minneapolis, it's the Cross, it's Des Moines, it's Chicago, it's Rochester. Does it make sense to have an entire fundraising team located in Decora, traveling to all of those places periodically and then coming back, I'm not going to put you on the spot here, but I think there's a future where for something like fundraising, having somebody in Minneapolis, La Crosse, Des Moines, Chicago could make a ton of sense, yeah, but that is a very different dynamic than how are we going to you know, have an amazing vocal uh, you know, arts right. uh, experience for the students.
1: Sure. And I think I think the same would hold for our enrollment, uh, you know, area admissions team. Yes. But, but so what we've been doing in development is I, I've been very clear that I, I want um, us to understand quote remote work in a limited way, not taking it off the table. But we do have uh, a person who's sort of centered in closer to the Twin Cities. We've got a person in the sort of um, you know Cedar Rapids, Iowa City kind of area. But the understanding is, yes, you're you're going to be concentrated on those areas, and then you're going to come back to home. Yes, for you know this event, that event, for regular staff meetings, whatever it is. So that it's so that that you are you know think of it like an accordion. Um, where you sort of go out and then, you, but you got to come back in at some point to get air, yep. you have to come back in to Absolutely. get air. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You got to Look, you got to know the impact, the message, the vision that you're selling, uh, you know, in the development context. I know we are short on time, but I have to ask you in closing, um, I hinted at it earlier, but what is the role in your mind in this environment where as a college president, all college presidents are under pressure. Outcomes, outcomes, jobs, jobs, outcomes probably wasn't the number one thing people talked about when you were deciding to study German, when you decided to study it. But as a mentor, as a you know leader in the community, when somebody says, I think I want to study German, do you say, that's great and let me help you? Or do you say, that's great, but let's keep an eye out on what that means for career path Do you say, you know what, you might want to consider something, you you know, go study computer science because that's where the jobs are. Like, how do you balance that in your position?
1: Yeah, I think I, you know, on the one hand, I would say um, you don't have to just study German. So there is a possibility at a liberal arts college for you to, let's say, major in German because you love it and you love taking those courses and you love you know, um, literature and you love film and you love, and you love music and all those things, Um, but you also are getting a grounding in a general education and, you know, maybe a minor, but not necessarily. Now this is my controversial statement. I think the BA is, um, is gonna be uh, not seen as the terminal degree uh for a lot of different fields and so there's always graduate school so maybe you do maybe you major in german and then you you're also doing you know work in some other area but let's say you just want to do german what is it about learning and studying german that is preparing you for all different kinds of career paths that you never even considered and so i'll circle back to what i said at the beginning i did not say I'm gonna learn German so that I one day can be a college president where 90% of my day is spent trying to communicate with people who are different from me, who believe different things, who want different things, who are trying to hold on to different things than, than I think need to happen for the strategic advancement of this college. And it was learning how to interpret and learning how to translate and learning how to listen and learning how to understand nuance and texture and gesture uh, and all of those things. And to read a different uh, a language about a different culture than mine and to appreciate that, that has given me the skills to be a college president. It's not that I can read a balance sheet. I mean, that, that doesn't hurt. Um, It's not that I can't think strategically. I need to be able to do that. It's not that I don't know a basic level of things about the advancement area or the finance area or the enrollment area or the facilities area. Those are all learned skills. Yeah. But learning how to listen and translate and interpret and work across difference which is what you learn when you're studying a foreign language, um, in a foreign culture. That's really what prepared me to be a college president. And, and, and I'm not alone. I I you know I've talked to other college presidents who who came out of the same background that I did in the, in the Modern Language Association, and we agree that that's what
0: prepared us. I mean, those I are beautiful. Be a Beautiful closing thoughts. And I will say I did not study Spanish, Portuguese and Italian, so I could be a tech company CEO, but here we are. And it's a lot of the same, uh, you know, I was nodding, uh, emphatically as you were sharing that because it, it's, it's so right. It's about empathy. It's about communication. It's about learning enough to be dangerous across a variety of functions. But, uh, but ultimately, um, you know, a lot of that is going to be picked up on the job and through mentorship and, and so forth. Um, I, I'm gonna stop there. I'd love to keep going. This has been such a, uh, a privilege to catch up with you. I'd love to come say hi next time that I'm in the uh, in the area. If you're okay with that.
1: Oh, for sure, for sure, absolutely do. Well, you know, it's the, the Whippy Dip's not the only ice cream in town. You know, uh, we now have Sugar Bowl, uh, which is hard ice cream. And you know, so early on in my presidency, I was asked to you know, put a stake in the ground for one or the other. And I said, you will not
0: get me to do that. Yeah, I would, I would tread, I would, I would go, uh, public on politics before I would pick whippy dip versus, uh, sugar, sugar bowl. bowl. Yeah, so, no, uh,
1: right. but, but we'll go, I to love it. Rock and, and, uh, and enjoy a craft brew of some sort. Whippy, Di- uh, I nice. should just say, um, pulpit rock is the CEO of pulpit rock is a Luther alum. So oh, yeah.
0: Know. No. And and, the, and they've done the development next door, too, which is uh, which the landing is beautiful. Market,
1: fun, yeah. landing.
0: Yeah. And um, well, I, we're going to make that happen next time that I'm there. I should just say, you know, to the extent that there are folks listening who, you know, are aspiring to go down a similar path would like to stay in touch. I know you're on LinkedIn. I know you're on Twitter. Um, are, are those good ways to sort of reach out or touch base or,
1: or sure. yeah, probably, you know, LinkedIn is good. Um, I, I think because there, there, are you know, so many people in the Luther verse, um, if, if someone, if they reach out to me on LinkedIn, if they can just say, I, you know, I, I'm connecting with you because of the Rays podcast, yes. um, that helps me sort of filter out
0: some yes. of
1: that I can't really identify, but sure.
0: Understood. Understood. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ward. It's it's been a uh, it's been a blast learning more about your journey. I'm going to thank uh, again Martin Shell for making the connection. We'll make sure to share the episode uh, with him, and I wish you the absolute best as you continue to lead things um, at Luther. And uh, and with that, I will sign off today's episode with Dr. Jennifer Ward, President of Luther College. Thanks thank again. You.
1: Thank you. Bye bye.